you will join me in Galatians chapter 3. We continue in our series through Paul's letter to the Galatians. This morning we are in chapter 3. We will be looking at verses 19 through 22. And the title of our sermon for our worshipers in training Excuse me, the title of our sermon is What's with the Law? But our keywords for our worshipers in training are law, transgression, and intermediary. Now, if you've ever spent much time with a child between the ages of about three and six, you learn pretty quickly that you need to brush up on a few things. One, you better be able to be quick on the draw with synonyms to define words. You are expected to be a walking thesaurus. Secondly, all of those things that you learned in school that you never thought you'd need to remember, if for no other reason you need to remember them, because you will enter into a daily game of 5,464 questions. Thirdly, if you're going to have rules, and you must, they need to be very precise, and you must anticipate all of the ways to get around them. Most of the time, we take things we know and understand for granted. We forget that everything we know we had to learn at one point in time. And it's not until a child asks you, how you know that one plus one equals two, that you remember it's something you didn't always know. And then when they start reading a whole new wave of questions, as they look at books and magazines and storefronts and street signs, Daddy, what does title pawn mean? Good luck explaining that to a five-year-old in a way they can understand. But it's the intrigue, it's the wonder, the natural excitement for learning new things and and having a greater grasp of the world and, and how to put the pieces together and think through things that I think we as Christians need to develop more and more into our lives as we enter into the world of studying the scriptures. Oh, that we could be that inquisitive of God's word. Like trying to answer the questions of a young child, we should, we should come to the Bible and ask those questions. They may seem simple, they may seem unnecessary, but we want to ask the questions and then develop responses to those questions that we assume we already know, but we've really not thought about for a long time. For example, this morning, we're going to be looking at one of those questions. What's with the law? What is it? Why is it? What purpose does it serve? How many times every day does somebody tell you what to do? Probably far more than you realize. Traffic laws, caution tape at a crime scene, regulations about the temperature that a restaurant must wash their dishes in, Rules about your children and how they're educated and whether or not you can live in a tent on the side of the road and how often 
These things come up day by day by day, and we don't necessarily even recognize them as what they truly are. But so often, we stop ourselves from doing the things we want to do because we know that the action is prohibited or wrong. Now, let's be honest. Most of us probably don't feel a lot of guilt when it comes to speeding down the road. But we keep ourselves from doing it, primarily because of the consequences associated with it. As Christians, hopefully, we consider that God has called us to submit ourselves to civil authorities, but a lot of times our consciences only go as far as not wanting to deal with a fine, or if you're really fast, with jail time. But who gets to make up the rules? Where do they come from? Should the punishment fit the crime? Or does all justice look the same? You see, perhaps we haven't thought through all of these details as well as we thought we had because we just sort of assume the responses to all of them. We haven't been forced to sit down with a five-year-old type mind and ask all of these questions. Why? 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 But this is the question that Paul seeks to ask about the law. Why? And he's going to answer, for it to answer it for us today because it relates to what we've been looking at and specifically what we looked at last time and where Paul is headed in the chapters ahead. Now remember, in this letter, the Apostle Paul is dealing with a controversy related to the false teachers called the Judaizers, wishing to combine the Mosaic law with the gospel as joint grounds for our hope before God. Last time we identified that it was a confusion of the covenants. The Judaizers had supposed that both faith in Christ and works of the law are necessary for one to continue in their right standing with God. But Paul had sought to show them that, it re- that if they really wanted to live by any degree of making their works the grounds of their hope, they must stand all together on the footing of the law, which prescribes perfect obedience, and there is no other way. So he taught us in the previous passage, if we want to live upon the law, we must live up to the standard of the law perfectly and renounce all of the blessings that come in God's covenant with Abraham, which promised life to men, not by fulfilling the law, but by believing in, trusting in, and receiving that which is a gift from God, faith in the offspring, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the next question that logically follows in Paul's argument is what we see today. If that's the case, if we cannot be saved by the law, then what is the purpose of the law? Why do we have it? If you're saying we can't be saved by the law, he's anticipating the Judaizers will ask, then why did Moses give us the law in the first place, 430 years after God's covenant with Abraham? What's with the law? That's our question. 
So this morning we're going to look at verses 19 through 22. If you're using the blue ESV Bible in the seat back in front of you, we will be on page 973. We'll begin by reading these verses together, and then we'll come back and look at each in more detail. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now the first point for us to look at this morning we see in verse 19. And that is, the first use of the law of God is to awaken within us a sense of our guilt. Now, if you remember our previous passage, you will recall that we sought to understand Paul's identifying the law of God with the Mosaic Covenant. Remember, God covenanted with the Israelites through Moses, their federal head. And in so doing, he provided laws for the Israelites. And in their Looking to the law, they would either be blessed or cursed, depending upon their obedience when they lived in the land of Canaan. Now, more specifically, we understand that the moral law of God is what we call the Ten Commandments. And the remainder of the Mosaic law is to be either civil sort of case law Uh, that flows out of the moral law, or it's ceremonial law to govern worship of the people in the temple and the tabernacle. So upon this stands the question that Paul is addressing. If the Mosaic Covenant is not another way of salvation, if it was only intended to govern the lives of God's people upon the land in Canaan, in terms of his giving his people an obligation to keep What is the purpose? Now, specifically, when Paul is referring to this, remember in in Romans chapter 7, Paul defines the law as it's tied to a specific command. He deals with the 10th commandment about covetousness. Also in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul refers to the law. He just says the law, but he's referring to that which came down from the mountain with Moses. And then here in Galatians, he said God gave the law but he says he gave it 430 years after the Abrahamic covenant. It's very clear that Paul is referring to the Ten Commandments. So he's making these references to the law in very specific terms. And likewise, he's also made it very clear that the law of God is holy and righteous and good. Now, I think you will agree with me that thus far, through Paul's letter to the Galatians, he has made it undeniably clear that the promises of God are not and never will be obtained through the Mosaic Covenant, through the keeping of the law. But there's still a purpose to the law. In fact, we understand there to be three purposes to the law. 
We're going to deal with the first one this morning. Because the law still has a function. It has a function for us today in very much the same way that it functioned for the Galatians in Paul's day. So this is the question we're tackling. If redemption is not by the law, what is the law's significance? And Paul gives our first answer in verse 19. It was added because of transgressions. Now, when you think about the law and what it is and what it does just based upon your daily life, I think most people would probably respond to this question and say, well, the law is given to ensure that sin is restrained. It helps keep order in society. But Paul is saying something very different here, isn't he? Now, that certainly is a use of the law. We call that the second use of the law. But Paul's addressing something else here. It's the same thing he communicates in several different ways in his letter to the Romans. In Romans 5.20, Paul writes, The law was added so that the trespass may increase. Seems like maybe Paul made a typo. The law was given so that trespass may increase. Now, think of it this way, though. If we are governing a people and we add laws upon laws upon laws, what ends up happening? All of us are going to break them. We're going to come to a point where we finally say, I can't do it. I can't keep up with it. And as soon as I attempt to keep one law, I break another law. And that, Paul is saying, is the point. So as the regulations are increased, the scope of how the law will be transgressed will increase as well. The more the laws there are, the more sin there will be, because sin is any transgression of the law of God. And here's another thing about the law. Because of man's heart, the perversity, the depravity of the human heart, the law doesn't just identify what sin is, but it actually stimulates sin within us. Again, seems contrary to what we understand the law to be. But Paul is saying something quite different. Two things here. First, the law identifies what sin is, and you can think of it in real simple, ther- uh, real simple terms. If I don't tell my children, don't eat that cookie on the plate in front of you, I can't call them guilty for breaking a rule because it was never a rule. It wasn't made to be a law. So if someone's going to transgress the law, we have to first identify that it is, in fact, a law. But here's the second thing. If I tell my children... Don't eat the cookie in front of you on the plate, which, by the way, is probably a very unjust rule given the stakes here. But regardless, they've been given a command. And if they are given the command, what is going on in their hearts? Well, the Bible teaches us the same thing that goes on in your heart. The very fact that I am told, don't do that makes it all the more enticing, doesn't it? The temptation doesn't subside. The temptation increases. When the law forbids, the heart is prompted to transgress it all the more. 
That's what Paul's saying. And he tells us this is the point of the law. This is why, one of the reasons why, God gave us the law in the first place. And that seems strange because it is strange. But think of your own heart here. What happens when you hear the law? When you hear what God commands of you? We're always trying to justify why what we hear doesn't quite match up with my circumstances. And I'm quickly going to develop a hundred exceptions to this. In my heart, I start going through all the scenarios and why what I'm going through and how I'm dealing with it is just different. Surely it doesn't apply. You shall not murder. Ah, well, got that covered. I've never murdered anybody. That's what the world tells us, right? I'm a good person. I've never killed anybody. But Jesus was keen to the tricks we like to play in our hearts with words in attempt to justify our sins. So what does Jesus say? You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So you see, here's what we talked about. The law is bigger than we first assumed. We can transgress it in more ways than one. But just think about the other part of it too. Think about if I came across you while you're on the phone with the cable company. They've overcharged you by $100 and now you're trying to get your money back. But they're giving you a hard time about it. You're getting fired up. And I come to you and say, don't be angry. Calm down a little bit. It's going to be okay. What is going to be your natural, I'm not walking in the spirit at this moment response? Now, I'm not suggesting that we always respond wrongly to things that we are doing. As Christians, we should be walking in the Spirit, and the Lord helps us in those moments. He's dealing with our hearts. Christians have a non-obligation to sin. However, we do sin. And so, the law of God does this very thing. While I'm pointing out that you're getting angry and God isn't pleased with that, the already angry heart, apart from a tremendous work of the Spirit, is probably going to respond not with, well, thank you, brother. You're right, and I am so very thankful for the rebuke. No, instead, you're going to hold the phone and say, excuse me? Do you have any idea what I'm dealing with right now? Now, of course, it's very revealing of my own heart that I happen to be the hero of my illustration here. In fact, just this week, I was on hold for an hour with the IRS and then got disconnected after they answered the call. This definitely applies to me right now. 
I can assure you that I'm far worse than you in all of this. But when I know the law of God in my flesh, I want all the more to transgress the law of God because it feels good to be angry. It delights all my senses. And again, Paul tells us here, that's the point of the law to reveal that to you, to show you why your senses are being delighted because it's against all that God has said is good and right. But why? Why is that the point? Remember, we've, we've already talked about how the law providing a hypothetical possibility of salvation is just that. It's hypothetical. Leviticus 18.5 says that the one who does what's written in the law will live. This is the promise of the law. Keep it and you will have life. Have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees and you will live. Love your neighbor as yourself and you will live. But Paul has already made it abundantly clear that this is not possible. So in this way, the law does two things. First, it shows me who I am. No doubt, unquestionably, a sinner. And secondly, it shows me who I must be, which is defined by the law. So I am a sinner, but who I must be is perfect, defined by the law of God. I must be like God, because the law is a revealing, a summary of God's character. So what I need to be is equal with God in perfection. No problem, right? Hopefully you see there is a massive chasm between who I am and who I must be. So our natural tendency is, instead of saying, I can't do that, we do what we talked about a while ago when we started in Galatians. We attempt suicidal pole vaulting. We want to leap the chasm. We want to go from who I am to who I must be. But what happens? 100% of the time, no matter how far of a running start I get, no matter how far I can fling myself, 100% of the time I fall short. And the more we know about God and who he is and what he requires, the larger the chasm grows. And it grows and it gets wider and wider and wider. And we are never more able to cross it. So we keep falling down to the bottom of the chasm. But our natural tendency is to keep trying. Human life under the law is like one massive episode of Roadrunner. And we are the coyote. Every time we try to take it out... We just end up hurting ourselves all the more. And then we try again and again and again and again, never with any level of success. And the law just provokes us to jump. And we fall and we fail again and again. But Paul is pointing out something here. He's telling us that this is a good thing. How is that a good thing? Because the only time our ears are open to hear the gospel, even as Christians, is when we're at the bottom of the chasm, looking up 
flat on our backs, being reminded, I can't do it. I cannot do it. I can't cross the chasm. I cannot be who I am supposed to be. If I'm not at the bottom, I'll never see it. I will never hear it. We have to be at the bottom looking up. So you see, the basic job description of God's law is to reveal that you are not God. And you will never be God. Because the law tells us that we must be just like him. And you cannot fulfill it. This is a death sentence for the old Adam. If you look across the chasm and you think in your heart, I can do that. You've forgotten who you are. It's only when you look across and you say, I can't do it. Who will get me there? How can I cross that chasm? How can I do it? I can't do it on my own. I am absolutely helpless on my own. It's only then that we get it. So the law works to get us to the place where we will finally be kicked out of our endless audition to become our own savior. The law exposes the law of Satan that is so naturally bound up in our hearts. You will be like God. You can do it. Is that even possible? Not in us. Not at all. Now, Paul has this strange thing he says here at the end of verse 19. He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Here's the point. The law will slay you. And when the law slays you, it leaves you saying, who will get me there? And when it does that, I am shown how much I need the promised seed to recommend me to God. So this is the first use of God's law, to show me that I'm condemned and unable to keep it. Therefore, I need to seek for life as a free gift from God through faith, through the promised seed, because I have no other option. In his treatise on the law and gospel, John Calhoun writes this, the law accuses, condemns, and terrifies the awakened sinner. And so it urges him to flee speedily for refuge to Jesus Christ, who is the real cause of one's becoming dead to the law. When I see and hear and know and understand the law, I am awakened to the fact that I am 100% without a doubt guilty. And if there's any hope for me to be declared not guilty, I must become dead to the law. And it's only when I am alive in Jesus Christ that I can do that. Now, this thing that he says about the angels in an intermediary seems difficult, but it's really not as confusing as it appears. Paul is pointing out that angels were present and had a role 
in connection with the giving of the law to Moses. Moses was the intermediary he's talking about here. So we have the law of God ordained through angels in the hand of an intermediary, who is Moses. This seems to be a direct reference to Deuteronomy 5, where Moses says to the Israelites, I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. So Paul has a rather simple lesson in mind for the Galatians here. The law given at Sinai was from God, through his holy angels, by the agency of Moses, and it is holy, righteous, and good. However, it is inferior to the promise given to Abraham because while the law came indirectly from God, the covenant with Abraham came directly from the Lord himself. So think of it this way. If you were working at a large corporation and your manager who reports to the vice president, who reports to the president, who reports to the CEO, he comes to you and he says, the CEO wants me to pass along that there's a new policy and all of the employees need to follow it now. It's going to come a lot different to you than if you come and sit down in your office and the CEO is sitting there in your chair. See, in one way, you're getting a third-hand message. That's very different from getting it face-to-face. We respond to it differently. It carries a different level of importance. And that's the thing that Paul is communicating about the relationship between God's covenant with Abraham and his covenant with the Israelites through Moses. When the message is of supreme importance, he delivers it directly. So also, the salvation that comes by grace alone is such a precious truth to the heart of God to whom he is giving salvation that he appeals to each of us directly and personally by saying, my son, my daughter, give me your heart. Not through an intermediary, but from God himself. Now Paul goes on in explaining this point a bit in our second observation here in verse 20. And he points out that Moses was great, but God is far greater. Look again, verse 20, it says, Now an intermediary, Moses, implies more than one, but God is one. Now it seems an odd verse if you look around at the different ways that scholars have tried to understand it. You're going to find about 500 different options. So instead of giving you a rundown of all those things, I think there's a simple way to understand Paul's argument here. Paul is most likely stating the distinction between the two covenants that we've just mentioned. Remember... Last time we looked at Galatians, we talked about the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, the law and the gospel. The law was given to the Israelites through Moses as an intermediary, but the promise was given to Abraham by the word of the Lord, right? So even though an intermediary may be important, he is only a third party acting between two other parties, Moses was the human link between God and the people, but he himself lacks all independent authority. 
Furthermore, the law given at Sinai through Moses placed binding obligations on two parties, both God and man. So the Mosaic Covenant had both an intermediary and it was conditional upon the obedience of two different parties. But then Paul says, but God is one. When he made his promise to Abraham and through him to all believers, whether Jew or Gentile, he made the promise on his own account, directly and personally. So you see, the Mosaic Covenant requires human obedience, and therein lies the weakness. But the covenant of promise is God's gracious gift, requiring nothing of man but acceptance of that gift. Paul identifies this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son. You see the difference. What the law couldn't do, God did. In other words, what the covenant at Sinai could not accomplish, God accomplished through his covenant with Abraham and his people. And then Paul ends up this section this morning. I'm going to see this last thing in our text. And he reemphasizes something he has pointed out time and time again now throughout his letter to the Galatians. And that is that we cannot obtain righteousness by obedience to the law. Verses 21 and 22. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now here specifically, Paul is reemphasizing this main point because he wants to make clear that the Judaizers are indeed correct in their assumption that there really would be a problem in reconciling the Abrahamic covenant with the Mosaic covenant if there really was a possibility of obtaining life by keeping the law. That would be problematic. But there's no question that Paul has been emphatic throughout his letter that the law cannot, will not, has not ever imparted life because we are all lawbreakers. Therefore, no man can find a right standing before God based upon works of the law. So Paul sort of concedes one of the Judaizers' main points here. Sure, you're right. If the law was given so you could obtain life by the law, then righteousness would come by the law. You'd be right in insisting that the Galatians adhere to the legal requirements that you're trying to press them into. But I've shown you there's no possible way to obtain life by the law. So the legal requirements you're seeking to bind the Galatians to are not for righteousness sake. Law cannot save because law cannot give a new heart. And every single person needs a new heart. No one can keep the law of God perfectly, which is God's standard. To be righteous in the eyes of God, Jesus said, be perfect because my Father in heaven is perfect. That's the law. So Paul sort of harkens back to this previous hypothetical. If you could do it, you could be saved from the law. But he identifies that in practice, the law only condemns the sons and daughters of Adam. 
So he wrote in Romans 7, the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. In other words, God gave Adam and Eve the law to live by in the covenant of works, and their keeping of that covenant guaranteed life. But they broke the covenant. And so the law that was given for life actually brings death because we cannot keep it. That's what Paul means in verse 27. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin. In other words, the scriptures which clearly convey man's inability to obey the law of God establishes his sinfulness and the inevitable reality of life that we are guilty before a holy God. But you see, Paul's helping us to see that it's God's purpose. This is what God wants. He doesn't want us to think we can be justified by works of the law. He wants us to see that we stand condemned under the law. Man needs no help in deceiving himself to think that he's a good person and that God should accept him on the basis of him being a good person. God wants us to realize that he has a standard so high that we will never, ever come close to achieving it. He wants us to realize that so that his promise should prevail. At the end of verse 22, Paul tells us God has done this and God has purposed this so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. God is faithful, and God will fulfill his promises. God wants all the glory, so there is no possible way for salvation by works of the law. Because were we able to do so, we would be able to boast. But we have no grounds of boasting when we are condemned under the law. We can only be saved by God, by grace, through faith. In Ephesians 1, Paul says that the Christian's salvation is for the ultimate purpose of the praise of his glorious grace. I can't do that if I save myself. But when I recognize what God has done for me in Jesus Christ, my whole life can be lived to the praise of his glorious grace. It's not anything I've done. It's certainly not anything I've deserved. It is all of God. And it's been all done for me. And for you. Friends, our Creator has made very clear in His Word, through His law, what He requires. In revealing to us what He requires, He has also made very clear that we have no ability whatsoever to live up to that requirement. Whether we acknowledge it or not, every man, woman, and child in this world knows God profoundly. Everyone knows God. And we know that he's to be honored, and we know that he is to be thanked. Everyone also knows that we have failed to honor and to thank God because we are intimately aware that we are breakers of the law that is written on our hearts. And the Bible tells us that while we know God's decree, that those who practice sin and fail to uphold the law of God deserve to die We suppress the truth and unrighteousness and not only do the things opposed to the law of God in our sinful state, we actually give approval to those who practice such lawlessness themselves. 
So not only does mankind know God and know that God is to be thanked and to be honored, we know that we fail at both of those things in our hearts and in our minds, and so we are suicidal and we are murderous because we approve of the doing of things that lead to death. And in fact, we do them ourselves and we approve of them in others. We're willing to kill ourselves and we're willing to see the death of others. My friend, do you still think of yourself as innocent? If you don't hear one thing this morning, I hope you will at least hear and remember this. Paul writes this in Romans 5, 7 and 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was chastised for our peace. He was given stripes that we would be healed. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy. Christ was cast off that I might be brought in. Christ was trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend. Christ was surrendered to hell's worst that I might obtain heaven's best. Christ was stripped that I might be clothed. He was wounded that I might be healed. He was parched that I might drink. He was starved that I might eat. He was tormented that I might be comforted. He was made a shame that I might inherit glory. Christ entered darkness that I could dwell in eternal light. And our Savior wept that all of our tears might be wept from our eyes. Our Savior groaned that we might have endless song. Our Savior endured all pain that we might have unfading health. And our Savior bore a thorned crown that we might wear a crown of glory. He bowed his head that we might uplift ours. And he experienced reproach that we might receive welcome. And he closed his eyes that we might be made to see. Our Savior died that we might live forever. It was my penalty. I owed it but he paid it. My judgment was given to him. He was innocent. I am guilty. He was cursed. My sins became his and I am set free. It's remarkable. It's unfathomable. For our sin, he made him to be sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took our sins. He endured the judgment. He endured the wrath. He paid the penalty. Because he could keep the law that I could never keep. And if him paying our death penalty once wasn't enough, he also gave us a right standing before the Father. When God looks at his children, he doesn't just look and see sin and defilement. He sees his son. 
he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus because Jesus was the perfect son. He was perfectly obedient in doing what I cannot do. He was perfectly obedient in doing that which only kills me. And he did it so that I could live. The father looks on his children and he sees the perfect obedience of Christ on our behalf so that in the end, if you are in Jesus Christ, he looks on your record and he sees it all smeared over in the blood of Christ. And as the charges against you are recounted, one after another, after another, after another, after another, every single one of them is crossed out in blood. And it's stamped complete and final, never to be tried again, not guilty. And friends, if you are not in Christ, if you are not a Christian, you don't get to the place where this is true and beautiful and good and right for you because of anything you do. You don't do anything. You can't earn anything. You're not good enough. You're certainly not worthy of it. There's nothing you can do, only something you can receive. All that there was to do was done by Jesus Christ alone. So all men everywhere are commanded to repent and believe and to bank all of our hope on the doing of another. Sure, you were saved by works, by the works of Jesus Christ. He did something. He did the greatest thing, and now believers believe And he makes us all that he is. Do you bank everything on Jesus Christ? See what God requires of you and acknowledge in your heart that you can't do it. You will always fall short. You always have fallen short. So instead of seeking to keep the law and live by an impossible standard, Stop trying to pole vault over the chasm. Place all of your hope, all of your desires, and all that you find worthy of pursuit in Jesus Christ. And I assure you, trusting in Jesus doesn't mean you will no longer sin. Any Christian will tell you this. But while we all have great sin, we have an even greater Savior. Are you trusting in him? Let's pray. Father, I pray that your people, each and every one of us, will be brought to be reminded yet again that you command of us that which we cannot fulfill. You have called us to a life of perfection according to your law, and we cannot do it. And so I pray, God, that this morning your very law would overturn our hearts and remind us yet again that we are wholly dependent upon Christ. There is no way that we could fathom all that it would take to fulfill what you have called us to. Because in our lives, in our hearts, We are broken. We are sinful. 
We desire the things of the world and the things that delight the flesh. And so we pray, God, that as we are reminded yet again this morning that we cannot do what we are commanded to do, that we look to the one who has fulfilled it all. And that we trust fully and completely in Christ, in Christ who has lived and died, that we may live forever, who has been raised from the dead to conquer sin and death. So that now as we rest in him, we're not obligated to sin. We don't have to sin, but we can walk in obedience to you delightfully and joyfully, yet all the while knowing we still won't do it perfectly, and so our great need continues to be for Christ. Oh God, overwhelm our hearts with joy when we consider that as we stand before you as your people, that you will take every spot and blemish and covered in the blood of Christ, that we may be holy and blameless in your eyes. We pray, God, for those who are continuing to walk in their transgressions and sins, dead to the truth of the gospel. Send the Holy Spirit. May he come and dwell over their grave and raise them from the dead that they might have new life in Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.